Last month, I stole something that didn't belong to me, and I used it in a harmful way against someone, and I didn't know about it. Uh, A week ago, my mom made me aware of what I had done. Uh, Last week, I officiated my uncle's funeral, and before that, when we were writing his obituary, I had a family member who wanted to refer to his girlfriend using a Native American term. Uh, He didn't want to use companion, he decided for something else. And there was some internal debate that he was experiencing, but he ended up deciding to use it. And me, I was in the conversation. I was typing the obituary and I was the person who later emailed it to the proper people. Because of that, I had participated in the use of the term. It didn't belong to me. We used it in a context that wasn't appropriate and in a way that was harmful to the culture to which and the people to whom it belongs. And some people might hear that and think that's no big deal, but uh, someone let my mom know, someone that my mom has known for a long, long time, let her know that she'd been bothered by the term, that she'd been hurt by it. She is fully Cherokee. And this term was used that belongs to her. And my mom let me know that. I was made aware that As recently as a week ago, I participated in an historic injustice. So what did I do? Well, I immediately owned my actions, my inconsideration, my complicity through my silence, my not saying anything in that moment. I recognized the people who have been historically mistreated, who have been stolen from, and who were harmed by uh, our use of their term and their culture. So... I participated in the egregious historical treatment of indigenous people. I committed an injustice and I was made aware. What did I do with my newfound awareness? I'll tell you later on in the sermon, but I tell you the first part of that story to bring up the topic today, awareness. Understanding what God desires, the absence of it in the world around us, and also acknowledging the lack of it in us. With the rising tensions and constant conversations, some people are just now being made aware of justice by the public confronting of injustice. And there are debates, arguments, check a timeline, people fighting. And for some, they feel like talking about race is is only divisive. Like, why are we fighting about our differences and not fighting for unity? And that's actually some of the, the rationale that I wanna talk about today. You know, if you've been aware of injustice for years or for days, the goal of today is discussing and defining awareness of both justice and injustice, both communally and also personally. The points that I'm wanting to make will all start with these two words, be aware, be aware. So today, if you've got a Bible, uh, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapters five and six. We're gonna go through both of those, Isaiah chapters five and six. And again, the topic is awareness. Because of time, I can only do so much, so bear with me. Uh, I'll do what I can. But as we're in this justice series today, we're talking about just awareness and then continuing uh, Dr. Tisby's arc outline. Next week, Pastor Jerry is talking about relationships. And after that, uh, Michael will talk about commitment. But today... If you wanna follow kind of my thoughts, my points, here they are. Be aware of God's expectations, be aware of external injustice, and be aware of internal injustice. 
Look, a couple things before we get started, okay? Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is both alive and at work, that it cuts, pierces, and exposes like a sword, that it's discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Today might hurt. And in the words of our pastor, if you can't say amen, (laughs) just say ouch, all right? Just take it. And shout out to the AV folks. Look, if I make a good point, I'm expecting y'all to bring that air horn back from last week during the panel, all right? On purpose or not. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He was well-versed in all types of literature. I mean, the man was a genius. He was brilliant. And that was then taken and imported into the New Testament. 194 different New Testament passages either quote or allude to what Isaiah put in his own writing. During his ministry, the land of Judah was both wealthy and strong. But Isaiah describes the people as oppressing the vulnerable, idolatrous and rebellious against God and living in extremely lavish luxury. In simple terms, they were self-sufficient. They'd created a system that didn't require God's help or so they thought. Question for you that I'm sure you can answer, what do you think God felt about that? You don't have to, to ask that. We can see it in the first seven verses of chapter five. Um, and actually last month, Pastor Jerry was preaching Mark 12, one through 12 in the Bear Fruit series. And Jesus was recycling a parable that's found in this passage. So chapter five begins as a love song. God was resolved to sing over the people that he loved so much. And the verses express that God had planted a vineyard in the most fertile, sun-washed, rain-wealthy hill. He did all the work necessary to make this vineyard flourish. He provided everything. I mean, he did top-notch agrarian work, Uh, you know. So he was waiting for top-notch fruit. He was expecting the finest grapes. And what what happens? God indicts them for not bearing the fruit that he was expecting. And so the love ballad became a breakup song. He continued the metaphor, but he described his care, his keeping and his protecting were going to be withheld, which would result in both judgment and their destruction. God warned he was going to punish them. Why? Well, verse seven tells us, you can look at Chapter five, verse seven, and it says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, as Bron prayed this morning, is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for or waited for or expected, which is a similar word that was used in verse two. He waited for, he expected justice, but behold, bloodshed. He was looking for righteousness and all he found was an outcry. I wanna talk about these words so we can better understand what Isaiah is saying, but also so that we can better know our God. First, there's some wordplay going on here. The word for justice is mishpat. And the word for bloodshed is mishpak. The word for righteousness is tzedakah. And for outcry, tzedakah. And that outcry denotes the cry of the vulnerable and the oppressed, which you can read Exodus 22 verses 21 through 27 if you wanna know a little bit more about that. But those small sonic differences represent the tiny diversions that Judah had made over time, resulting in 
cosmically obstinate idolatry and systemically oppressive interactions with the vulnerable, which had big implications on how God felt and his response. Why? Because of God's expectations. You might be asking, what did God expect? I mean, we read it, but I'm not really sure and I'll make it make sense, but we've got to keep reflecting on these terms. To put it simply, justice is what HGM Williamson defined as putting to right things that have gone wrong. A little bit less simply, a stilted translation of the word justice means from a judge, all right? It's indicating that a a judgment, a decision, a ruling is coming from a judge. There's a Catholic professor of Hebrew Bible who asserted that the term mishpat implies that rights are due to every individual in the community so that when a person judges, those rights are to be upheld. And so it's easy to see that the proper decision provided by these presiding figures who are supposed to be upholding the rights of the people in the community would be translated as justice. We might express this idea like with the common phrase saying something like, uh, my brief explanation of this term won't do the depth of the term justice, right? Meaning I'm probably not going to do a great job of saying what it's worth or representing it fairly. Another person went on and said in Israel, justice is based on relationships, which is made more obvious when it's paired with the second term, righteousness. Dr. Carl Ellis explained this idea, stating that righteousness is a relational and a covenantal term. It means to do right by the other person in the party, the other person in the covenant. The word involves being loyal to a community, having goodness and character, which is evidenced by your actions toward others and upholding the rights or entitlements of another. I'll give you the last thing about righteousness. Another guy said, when people fulfill the conditions imposed upon them by relationships, they're righteous. And so when you put these two uh, words together, when you put justice and righteousness together, hear me, the smoothest translation of that idea is social justice. Now, I'm not the only person saying this. There are many people, including Moshe Weinfeld. He said, the concept of doing justice and righteousness in the literature of ancient Israel and their neighbors implies maintaining social justice in the society so that equality and freedom prevail for all people. And these terms were most often vocalized on behalf of the most vulnerable, uh, sometimes referred to as the quartet of the downtrodden, the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. That group is the recipient of God's attention and the beneficiary, the people who benefit from the prophet's blistering broadcast of the nation, including Isaiah's here. And, you know, this is part of God's covenant. So there were consequences for breaking it, which meant the punishment and the destruction of those who were oppressing. Throughout the Old Testament, God is clear. Let me make this plain. God's clear about his expectations. God wanted social justice. And look, regardless of what movement that reminds you of, that's what God wanted. It is plain as day in the text. Social justice wasn't just a popular thing in Israel though. It was popular among all the nations and God did it differently. And I'll kind of spare you the details on that for time's sake, but you can, you know, simply understand this. Yahweh expected everyone, everyone to live in socially just ways, but especially the kings. They were primarily responsible for legislating, leading, and living by 
social justice. You ready for this? God hasn't changed. And neither have his expectations for his people. So my first point, be aware of God's expectations. That's where awareness starts. Understanding what God expects. And God expects justice from his people. It was true of Israel And though it's probably expressed a little bit differently with a multinational transcultural body, it's still true of his church. We are the conscience of the kingdom for all of our cultures, wherever God has placed you. That means we have a social and a cultural responsibility. Our gospel isn't only this truncated message that's been passed down to us about praying a prayer in a revival meeting. The the gospel grows legs in people right? It changes them and they begin to seek to change the world around them. Listen, its impact on people cannot be contained. And if your gospel is containable, if it isn't robust enough to include uh, transforming people who then bless and transform the world around them, look, I'm not sure we're reading the same Bible. Now that doesn't mean that the church is supposed to like, I don't know, take over society or create their own community. But what it does mean is that we are to represent God, to image him to the world around us. God expects justice in a social setting that's restorative for all people and treats everyone with equity. And we should be reflecting that. But sadly in the United States, justice really only is retributive for us. It's punitive. It's only about punishment most often. It's not about being restorative. And if that's the extent of what justice means for us, listen, it's a neglect of Hebrew etymology or words. It's a neglect of Hebrew culture and worse, it's a neglect of Hebrew Bible. If we refuse to be aware of God's expectations of his church to righteously pursue justice, we may find ourselves in a similar place as Judah in this passage. And speaking of, let's see what God has to say about Judah in the rest of chapter five. That breakup song became a full-on eulogy, a funeral lament. God was envisioning the end of Judah's unrepentant behavior and he warns them of what would happen if they don't repent. And he did so using a common poetic literary device in the prophets called a judgment oracle. I'm gonna make this simple. It just has two parts. There's an accusation followed by an announcement of judgment. And more specifically, this is called a woe oracle, all right? What that simply means is that each of these indictments is begun with this interjection of woe, all right? And so uh, those were often used to address both groups and individuals, and they were common in funeral laments, in eulogies. So Isaiah here is telling a person who's alive that they're as good as dead, all right? Hold on to that. And there are six woes. There are six indictments against Judah. If you're looking at the text, you could circle these. Circle that woe in verse 8, verse 11, 18, 20, 21, and 22. The first two of those follow the pattern that I described, all right? There's an accusation, and then there's an announcement of judgment. But then the next three, they don't, they don't have an announcement of judgment, but that's a rhetorical device. What Isaiah is doing, and I'm telling y'all, he's brilliant. The man's brilliant. He's stacking it up, right? He's piling it on and he's setting this mood. It's getting real dark. The air is leaving the room. And so the people who would be hearing this would be like, oh, snap, this is, this is pretty bad. And what they would expect is that the last indictment, the last oracle would have this crescendo of curse and chaos. And let me tell you, Isaiah stuck the landing and you can see that in the text. 
But if you're wondering, why is God so upset? Let's dig into it. In verse eight, Isaiah confronts those who have wrongfully profited from the exploitation of the vulnerable. This came with government approval. It was carried out legally. They were acquiring houses and lands and just uh, stockpiling everything that belonged to the people. The problem with that was that they were neglecting the foundational truth that God had tried to instill in them at the beginning of his people, this foundational truth that the earth belongs to the Lord, that the earth is God's, and that the law was to be interpreted as providing for the poor, not profiting from them. They were literally supposed to give land back to the people who owned it originally in the year of Jubilee, but they never kept that. In verse 11, the rich and the noble leaders were celebrating feasts and festivals, but without their God. They were throwing parties with the profits that they'd produced from their exploitation of the poor. In verse 18, the people are straining to hold on to their sinful behaviors, which is empty and foolish. And then they're mocking God for his inactivity and they're mocking Isaiah for his words, saying things like, I mean, if God didn't want me to do this, why didn't he stop me? Or if God's gonna judge us, why doesn't he just go ahead and do it? In verse 20, it's a perversion of morality. Good had been exchanged for evil. The entire fabric of society had been inverted and the people of God looked more like the pagan nations surrounding them than what God wanted for them. In verse 21, the people were marked by pride and arrogance. They weren't listening to God nor his messengers and they considered themselves wiser and stronger than their God. Last thing in verse 22, he says they are champions of wrongdoing. Like first, first place, the picture here is that they are both literally drunk, but also metaphorically intoxicated by their greed. Like they're unable to see straight in their judgments. And just like before, they're partying with the profits that they made off of their participation in and perpetuation of injustice. You can see the scene is pretty ugly. Like God's not pulling punches and neither is Isaiah, man. Like Judah as a whole, especially here, the wealthy and royal families are seen as responsible for their social injustice. Last thing, I'm gonna make it plain, all right? God also condemns the religious leaders. The entire nation is busted, but in verse 12, it says something like this. They don't regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of his hands. In verse 24, they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the Holy One of Israel. Well, how did they get there? The religious leaders weren't doing their job. The prophets and the priests had punted their purpose. The clergy caved to the culture. And what was God going to do about that? Well, Dr. Makosi Nzimande is brilliant. She wrote, the failure of royalty to rule with justice would lead to God's inevitable judgment. Isaiah explained in verse 16 that God was going to bring retributive justice against those who had denied restorative justice. In that verse, God contrasts himself against the nation, claiming that he would be exalted by his humiliating of them, that he would display his own justice and righteousness by punishing those who oppose him and his pursuit of social justice, of defending the overlooked and the mistreated. And the reality that's being painted here 
is that it wasn't just a few bad apples. The whole nation was busted. The entire governmental system was skewed. Sure, each individual person participated, but people had legally enacted injustice and they led from the top in a way that damaged the entire fabric of society. There was more to the problem than individual people or isolated acts. And you might be asking, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, second point, we must be aware of external injustice. Be aware of external injustice. Look, Judah wasn't the only society that built a system that neglected God or his word or his messengers or people who were made in his image. Look around. Guys, remember I said today might hurt. Our country started by taking land, by the personalizing of property that did not belong to us, all right? Dr. Willie Jennings, referencing a book about Peruvian colonization said, this led to the destruction of place-centered identities. Because of that, race became the descriptor of who belonged where and what meaning their lives possessed. Land was then given to immigrants who looked like me, and you know that was to be worked by people who didn't for my ancestors as property through the commodifying of black bodies. Uh, you know, and we just celebrated Juneteenth on Friday, right? But as soon as that emancipation hit, what did my ancestors do? They enacted laws. They put legal codes in place to further oppress and obstruct black people. So many then want to look, you know, about a hundred years later at the civil rights era and hold that up as the end of racism, unwilling to acknowledge that racism and racial bias doesn't die, it only adapts. Much of the racist rhetoric that we've seen has attempted to be masked, to go unseen, leading to policies against people of color like the war on drugs, mandatory minimums, stop and frisk, among so many others. And right now we're all seeing the lacking accountability in policing. And before that, we saw uh, the mistreatment of the immigrant. And that's not a partisan issue. That's just facts. This doesn't include all of the impacts of legal racism in the medical field and jobs and availability and all the ramifications of that, the effects of redlining today, how schools are funded, loans of all kinds, and a number of other things tucked neatly behind veils. And many try to neglect this as the past. But over time, prejudice shape-shifted from slavery to segregation, from violence to silence, from overt to covert. White superiority, white supremacy can only survive in invisibility, in the dark. It's perpetuated by unawareness. That's why policies are being enacted right now like Breonna Taylor's law. And people are flooding timelines to help us be aware of the injustice around us. But unfortunately, many are comfortable denying this. So what I'm not saying is that God is going to judge America or use Canada to, to like Assyria to ruin us. That's not my point, okay? But we're able to see how God feels about his people neglecting those who are in need, who when his people are exploiting the vulnerable, when they're profiting off the poor. Listen, the church has been part of the problem at every moment throughout history. White Christians were complicit and contributing. Like, when do you think that that starts? 
like stopped. They participated in each iteration, then perpetuated white supremacy by being silent and unwilling to do something about it. When do you think that stopped being true? But this external awareness should trigger in us internal awareness and vice versa. You know, my wife is, Brittany, she's so discerning. She's so wise. And with everything that's going on in the world, she mentioned that some people might jump on the train of a movement of all of these posts and miss their own participation in and perpetuation of the problem. Some folks will be so focused on external injustice that they might overlook their own internal injustice. You might overlook your own internal injustice, which is a perfect segue into the last point. Yo, <laughs> Isaiah's literary genius right here, I can't, I can't put it into words. It's on full display. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they put their call and commission from God at the beginning of their book. Isaiah puts his after chapter five, which is kind of weird, right? If you're wondering why, it's because the external injustice wasn't just everyone else's problem. He saw himself as involved. In chapter six, Isaiah recorded a vision that he'd had of God. It was wrapped up in his favorite name for him, the Holy One of Israel. That's the picture that we get in verse one. The Lord is sitting on this elevated throne, distinct from and unconditioned by his creation. In verse three, God has a chorus sung about him, holy, 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 emphasizing his character, which that term holy is used more in Isaiah than any other biblical book. He's saying that God is set apart from common things, from the world that he rules over. And in verse five, Isaiah says more about that whole ruling thing. He calls him the king, acknowledging that he wasn't worthy to be in the king's presence. So what did Isaiah do? He lamented. He exclaimed, I'm lost. I'm destroyed. I'm as good as dead. Did you catch that? Isaiah associated himself with the people who were doing all the evil in the nation around him. He didn't make excuses. He didn't begin pleading his own case. He doesn't tell God all of the reasons why he should not be associated with the people who were doing the most. He simply pronounced a woe. Isaiah eulogized himself. He took ownership for the sins of his people, for his own sin. And that's the pattern among all the great leaders in the Old Testament. They own the sins of their people. What do you think Jesus was doing? And what does Isaiah do? He confesses. What does God do? He cleanses him and relieves Isaiah of his guilt. You know, Rev Tisby, soon to be doctor and the color of compromise said, history and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance, no repentance without confession, and no confession without truth. For going to be aware of God's expectations or of external injustice, we can't stop there. We need to take a page out of Isaiah's playbook and befriend confession. My wife and our neighbor Bianca uh, listened to an episode of Unlocking Us, a podcast by Brene Brown, where she was with Dr. Ibram Kendi on how to be anti-racist. Dr. Kendi emphasized confession. He says that the phrase, I'm not racist, comes from unawareness or fear. And rather than engaging their potentially racist remarks or actions, people throw up a defense, try to get off the hook, or do things like mention people they're in proximity to or what church they're part of or who they watch, listen to, or vote for. 
But the reality though, is that all of us have been conditioned in an environment that produces racist attitudes and actions. That's why my third point is this, be aware of internal injustice. Be aware of internal injustice. Because whether you're aware of it or not, you will ascribe to racism in some way. And when it happens, you have a choice. You can either preserve and deny that you're capable of such behavior, or you can acknowledge that it isn't your identity, that it doesn't have to define you, and confess, finding freedom from fear, freedom from shame, and freedom from the perpetuation of your own racism. Dr. Kennedy described that people oscillate between racist and anti-racist thoughts, that there is no in-between, and that all of us do it. He says, it's not an identity issue, it's an awareness issue. And if you are willing to be aware of what racism looks like, then you can address when you participate in it, whether overtly or covertly. And when you do, you confess. You own what you've said, you own what you've done, and you confess. Because listen, when we stand before the Holy One of Israel, none of us are gonna be pleading our own case. Like, I'm not racist, look at all of these things. None of us are gonna try to say, God, I, I didn't do it. We are all going to immediately admit in the presence of his perfection, in the presence of his glory and his splendor, we will say, God, I ascribe to racism and these actions and in these attitudes, it was true of me. So why don't we get a head start on the confession? Why not start now? Why wait until then for that to be true when you could find freedom? You could find freedom. I'm sure that you're aware of 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. So confess your unawareness. Confess your ignorant statements, your harmful jokes, your biased attitudes, your complicit participation, your perpetuating silence and confess your denial of, your apathy toward and your refusal to dismantle and divest from the effects of white supremacy on the lives of people of color and especially black men and women. And when you begin this lifelong commitment, not only are you joining God and working for justice, you'll find freedom for yourself. And when you become aware, you gain this new sense of freedom, this new responsibility. And that's why to kind of wrap it all up, I just wanna say act on your awareness. After seeing God, there wasn't anything Isaiah wouldn't do for him. God wanted a messenger, so Isaiah volunteered his tribute. And in verse eight, Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet. This passage, is often, this passage is often used for missions, but I want you to notice, who did God send Isaiah to? Not another country or another people. God wanted to get his people right. God satirically told Isaiah his preaching wouldn't do anything. It would only further harden their hearts. And Isaiah is called to be faithful, not fruitful. He wasn't supposed to preach because people would hear and think, wow, man, you're right. We have built this economic structure that like, I don't know, helps us profit off of exploiting the poor and the vulnerable. Let's change that. No, the fruitfulness of his ministry wasn't the basis for his ministry. Isaiah had to be faithful despite the results. His responsibility was his obedience, not the outcome. And in the same way, we too act on our awareness. Listen, act on your awareness. I'm gonna give you three ways to do that. It's just my, my three points restated. Act on your awareness by confessing internal injustice. We've just talked about that. Let me put that on the side for a second. Act on your awareness by confronting external injustice. What does that look like? 
have two pieces of advice. Read the scriptures and listen to the oppressed. When you read the Bible, God makes it clear what it looks like when uh, sinful people enact legislation and misuse their power. Then look around. Do you see the sin in the scriptures in the society around you? And if you do, confront it, call it out. Speak with God's authority behind you. And just know, not everybody's gonna like it, all right? You're probably not gonna find a home in a political party, which is a good thing, all right? That's part of the freedom I mentioned. And while you're also doing that, listen to those who are crying out, like the vulnerable in this passage. Read about, watch things to learn from, and listen to those who are struggling because of the color of their skin. Everyone struggles, no one's denying that, but those who don't look like me struggle simply because of the oppression related to their melanin content or their accent, their first language or their nationality. Lastly, act on your awareness by curating and conserving the character of our God. When you righteously pursue justice, you represent God. You represent him. You steward the truth of his word. You put his character on display. You image him, you reflect him, and you show off his perfection. Do you know what a gift that is? Now imagine a church that refuses to partner with him in that and how ugly it is. And because we get to partner with God and reflect him, that's why I called my mom's friend after the funeral. I called her not knowing how the conversation would go, but I knew what was right. I owned what I did. I confessed, I apologized, and I voiced my commitment to be better. She forgave me. I mean, the phone call was really shorter than five minutes, but someone made me aware and I saw how I participated in racism and I had to act on my awareness. That's the challenge today. Act on your awareness by confessing internal injustice, by confronting external injustice, and by curating the character of our God by pursuing what he expects. Reflect God by pursuing justice.